Well, for the first few centuries of the church, it didn't celebrate Christ's birth, believe it or not. As a result of that, it happened by the uh, second century, the actual date of Christ's birth had actually been forgotten. In my trying to study all the various things around traditions and legends, it's quite confusing when you try to try to uh, nail it down. Uh, the dates proposed, by the way, for Christ's birth vary uh, quite greatly. There's many options you can see on the screen here. For example, uh, a couple dates in January are an option, a couple in March, April, May, as well as November. So it, it varies greatly. So exactly when the church actually settled on December 25th is not exactly known. Uh, the early evidence that I've been able to come up with was uh, from a, a manuscript that was dated in the year 354. Uh, so it was at least by that time they had uh, the church had started celebrating Christmas on December 25th. Why the church finally decided to celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th is not exactly known for sure. There is some debate on that. Some of the options that I came across, for example, was uh, the church wanted an alternative to a very famous pagan holiday that was being celebrated on December 25th. Uh, Another option that that some hold to was was uh, December 25th is actually nine months, supposedly, supposedly nine months after Jesus' conception, which there's no proof for that, but uh, that is one of the reasons supposedly so over the centuries it's interesting all the various trappings that is now commonly associated with with christmas have have crept into this celebration uh let me just give you a few examples uh for example gift giving was an integral part of a of a pagan winter festival which uh, became firmly associated with christmas by the 18th century the practice of singing carols originated in the Middle Ages. The city of, I'm not sure how you say this, Riga, which is in Latvia, uh, claimed to be the home of the first Christmas tree back dating back to the 1500s. The first Christmas or commercial Christmas cards, as far as I understand, were sold in London, England in 1843. Santa Claus, of course, a very famous uh, legend, if you want to call it that, derives actually from the 4th century man named St. Nicholas. You'll see, uh, I'm assuming that's a Christmas card, uh, supposedly St. Nicholas on there. But anyway, he was a real man who was actually a bishop in modern-day Turkey. Nicholas was remembered for his generosity and kindness, which is why he ended up becoming a saint put quotation marks around saints. According to the legend uh, that I read, he actually rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution. And after doing their laundry, the girls ended up hanging up the stockings by the fireplace. And you'll see a picture of someone's fireplace here. But anyway, that night, Nicholas went and put some gold coins in each girl's stocking. And supposedly it was from that we ended up getting this tradition that some of us practice of having stockings even if you don't have a fireplace like we don't some people still have stockings hanging around 
You might wonder, well, where did the name Santa Claus come from? Well, my understanding is there were various settlers from the Netherlands who, uh, when they moved to the United States, brought that tradition with them. And in the Netherlands, uh, uh, St. Nicholas's name was Sinterklaas, and they changed that to English or anglicized it to Santa Claus, therefore the common name today. So those are just some of the trappings that we often uh, associate, even even uh, Christians sometimes associate with Christmas that have uh, kind of slowly seeped into the celebration. And all of those things are really extra-biblical elements. And those extra-biblical elements, uh, sadly, what they end up doing is obscuring the simple yet profound meaning of Christmas. It's sad, uh, sometimes I feel like I'm beating the same old uh, dead horse in a, in a way. We kind of, kind of, I, I have to remind myself, remind my family, what is it all about? What is the real meaning of Christmas? Sadly, the world celebrates Christmas usually for the wrong reasons. Christmas uh, often becomes an excuse for self-indulgence, materialism, and lots of parties. Therefore, we often call it the silly season, don't we? Or this, the busy season. So, for a lot of people, it's just ending, ended up degenerating into just a big social event that ends up missing the true meaning of Christmas. And think about it. Just, I've been to several Christmas events this year already. Other than our church event, think about it. How often does Jesus' name even come up? If you go to your work event, for example, uh, other than the, I mean, my work event that I went to at LIC, other than talking to my various Christian workmates, it, it doesn't come up with the unbelievers. It's, it's a non-event for them, basically. And so it's important that we come to Scriptures and remind ourselves, what is Christmas? Well, let's not forget, what are the first few letters in the word Christmas? It's about Christ. And so Luke, Dr. Luke, who is a Greek, writing to the Greeks, the Gentiles, uh, he's a Gentile writing to Gentiles, reminding us, who is Jesus? Of course, his primary purpose in writing is to show that Jesus is a man. Interestingly enough, as we focus on, on that, in this passage in Luke chapter 2, clearly shows that not only is Jesus man, he's also God. He's both, both natures. He is the God-man. So let's read our text coming from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. First of all, I want you to notice in the first few verses that Luke is kind of setting the scene for us here. And he's going to set this scene for Jesus' birth in in several different aspects. So let's first of all notice the world setting at this time. What was the world setting of Jesus' birth? Well, Dr. Luke doesn't say a whole lot, but we do notice in the first few verses that Caesar Augustus is the ruler at this time. Notice in verse 1, because it says that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So who is this man? By the way, that's not his real name. Uh, Caesar Augustus is a title. Caesar means emperor, as far as I understand. Augustus, also a title, just means that he is the, the revered one, the honored one, the highly esteemed ones. You could say that he is the the great emperor or he is the uh, highly revered emperor. It reflects the great respect that they had for him. Augustus' ascension to the throne, uh, I've heard, uh, actually marked the beginning of the Roman Empire. And you say, well, why is that? Well, uh, he actually restored the unity of the empire, restored the orderly government of the time in Rome, uh, see, there was a problem. There was division. There was, there was civil war going on between various Romans. So he restored the orderly governments and brought unity. He ushered in what the Romans called a Pax Romana, a, a peacetime, an era of peace and prosperity that was throughout the Roman Empire. And it lasted for two centuries. So he is considered by many to be the most significant person in Roman history. Luke doesn't tell us a whole lot about the man. He's just really just one of God's many puppets. But what Luke does demonstrate here is he's demonstrating God's sovereignty. God is reigning supreme even over these unbelievers. He's controlling events to bring about the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. You have to understand divine intervention was required here. In the normal course of events, Jesus would have never been born in the town of Bethlehem. You might ask why. Well, you need to understand is they were actually living in the town of Nazareth, which is up in Galilee. Uh, Bethlehem was down in Judea. So in the normal course of events, it would have never happened. 
Micah chapter 5 would have never been fulfilled if it wasn't for God using an unbeliever, a Roman pagan unbeliever at that, to accomplish his purposes. We see in the text that Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, which is up in Galilee. And so to fulfill the prophecy that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, God is moving in the heart of this Roman emperor, which was the most powerful man in the world at that time. And that's amazing when you think about it, because this mighty emperor is far removed from a little town in Judea named Bethlehem. He's far removed from God's plans. He doesn't care about God's plans. He's actually ignorant of God's word. And yet God uses him in a a crucial way to fulfill his plan for the birth of his son. So we see that Caesar Augustus is a ruler. And what does he do? Luke doesn't say a whole lot about him, but this in verse 1, that Caesar Augustus makes this decree that all the world should be registered. Now there's some debate on what's going on here. Is this a, is this a uh, census to find out how many soldiers does Caesar have? Or is this uh, a census to figure out, well, how much money can the Roman Empire make from taxation? Well, as far as we know, it had to do with taxation. And that was the, the purpose for this census. When did it happen? Well, we can't say exactly for sure. But uh, as far as we know, uh, it took some place between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. So if you're one of those who think Jesus was born on the year zero, sorry to disappoint you, he was not. And which would mean, by the way, he also didn't die when he was 33 years old. Jesus would have been at least 37 years old. So I know there's some confusion on that. But if you look at in your Bibles, you know, verse 3 mentions that everyone was supposed to go to their own town. Not the one they lived in, but they were supposed to go to their own tribal origin. And in this case, uh, the Bible says that uh, Joseph, both Joseph and Mary were from that, that region there in Bethlehem. So they were from Judea. So God's directing here the most powerful man on planet Earth at this time to accomplish his purposes. We're seeing God reigning supreme over his creation. So that's the world setting for Jesus' birth. Let's take a look at the national setting taking place in Israel we see in verses 4 and 5. So it's interesting when we look at Bible prophecy, centuries before Jesus' birth, the prophet Micah had written this. You look on the screen here in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Interesting. It mentions, actually mentions the town of Bethlehem there. Although Bethlehem, even during Jesus' day, was a a small little village, God's declaring that it would produce a ruler in Israel. The only king, who by the way came from Bethlehem, was King David. But of course he died before the prophet Micah's day. So this ruler must then be a reference to the Messiah. That's why Micah actually says here in verse 2, he says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That statement could not possibly apply to a human being, just a normal man. It had to be somebody who existed from all eternity. So clearly, 
even the prophet Micah is understanding and showing us that this Messiah would be the God-man. Well, let's look at the, the text here, make a few little points. First of all, we see in verse 4 that Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I've given you a little map to look at here. If you're geographically challenged, you'll notice Nazareth is up in Galilee, up in the northern parts there of Israel. In verse 4, it might be a little confusing to us because the text says that they went up. And so you might be wondering, okay, they went up. Well, going up, you, you'd probably think going north, right? Well, they didn't go north. Clearly, they went south because Bethlehem is south of Nazareth. You see that? So why does the text say up? Well, there's a reason for that, and that's because Bethlehem is actually higher in elevation than Nazareth. So in that sense, they're going up. They're going up in elevation, even though they're going south. So hope that helps clear that up. Second, we see that they, they're going to Bethlehem to register for this census that Caesar Augustus had decreed. Here's what the MacArthur Study Bible says. I'm quoting from it. Both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David and therefore went to their tribal home in Judea to be registered. This was a difficult trek of more than 70 miles or approximately 110 kilometers through mountainous terrain, a particularly grueling journey for Mary on the verge of delivery. I want to ask if any of you ladies have ever attempted to ride a donkey over 110 kilometers of mountainous terrain uh, while heavily pregnant. I can't imagine how difficult that would be. But that's what she did. She goes with Joseph to their town of origin. The Bible also mentions that at this point in time, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. At least that's what the ESV says. Some of you might be looking at a KJV. It says uh, espoused. New American Standard Bible says engaged. So what is that? Betrothed, espoused, engaged. I mean, what's going on here? It might be a little confusing to us because Matthew chapter 1 actually says that Joseph had already married Mary. By the way, there's no contradiction. Uh, part of that problem is that there's a cultural gap that we don't understand. So it has to be remembered that there's this distinction in, in Jewish culture between engagement and marriage, and it was not as clear-cut as it is for us today. So engagement, I hope you understand, was legally binding. It, it was actually a contract, uh, though there was no physical union that was consummated at this time. Clearly, uh, Mary was still a virgin. And here's what one commentator said about this text. He says, quote, Since a covenant to be married had taken place, Matthew could properly refer to the couple as married. But since the marriage was not physically consummated until after Jesus' birth, Luke could refer to them as engaged, since they were conducting their relationship as appropriate to the betrothal period. End quote. So, that's the national setting. We've looked at the world setting. So let's take a look at now the personal setting of Joseph and Mary and, and the circumstances that Jesus was born into. So as we look at this, remember, Dr. Luke, a Gentile, showing us Jesus is clearly a man, but at the same time we can also see he is God. He is the God-man. So I, 
that's what I've actually put down as my main idea for the text. Luke is showing us that Jesus is the God-man. He, he has two natures in one person forever. So not only is he man, he is the God-man. He's much more than just being a man. And, and we can see that in the text. For example, we, we see Mary giving birth, it says in the text, to her firstborn son. Look at verse 6. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. That, that's important to note. Uh, the text isn't saying her only son. We know the scriptures say that Mary did have birth to other children. So Jesus had brothers. We know that for sure. But this is saying that Jesus is the firstborn son. And that's crucial to note because in the teachings of Catholicism, uh, they actually get it wrong because their, their theology states that Jesus was Mary's only child and she ends up being this perpetual virgin throughout her lifetime. Clearly, that's wrong. Matthew, in fact, in chapter 1 says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. We also see Mary wrapped Jesus in cloths, according to verse 7. It says that uh, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were just strips of cloth that Jewish women would use to wrap their babies up. It's an interesting reference in our Bible showing the tradition of that time. Why did they do that? Why did the Jewish women do that? Well, they did it for several reasons. They would wrap their babies up snugly uh, like we might do today. They would do it for warmth and, and security and possibly other reasons as well. And you say, well, what's the point in that? Why is good old Dr. Luke mentioning this? Well, he, he's a doctor. He's interested in these sort of things. He's loving the babies and that sort of thing. But Jesus was treated here just like any other baby. It shows his humanity. We don't see Jesus being dressed in royal robes and paraded like he's, he's like some earthly king. No, not at all. He's just wearing the same old things that other babies in Israel wore. We also see that Mary laid Jesus in a manger. This reference has sadly given rise to all sorts of interesting traditions, and you probably see him on Christmas cards and various nativity scenes. In fact, I even have a nativity scene at home. It shows... Jesus being born in some sort of a wooden stable of some sorts. The Bible never actually states that he was born in the, the typical scenes you, you often see. In fact, the Greek word for manger here is just a feeding trough. Just an average feeding trough. A place where you'd find with animals. Such troughs could be found anywhere where these animals were kept. And you might ask, well, where was Jesus born then? Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say where Jesus was born, although there is an old tradition that says Jesus was born in a cave. Uh, that is a possibility. In fact, I understand they've built some church building over top of some grotto where they think Jesus may have been born. Don't know. Uh, that could be a possibility, but there's, as far as I know, there's no way to actually verify that. So, they, Mary lays Jesus in a manger. We also see there's no room in the inn. Verse 7, he, he's in that manger. He's, he's there where the animals were feeding because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, there's some tradition around this as well. 
Uh, part of the Christmas legend is, you've probably heard it said, there's some heartless innkeeper out there somewhere who, who had no heart for this young woman who's, who's greatly pregnant about to give birth to a baby, right? You've heard that, right? Well, <clears throat> that's a tradition. There, there is one problem with that. The Greek word for inn is just a general term for a shelter. Uh, it's, it's a place of lodging. So we're not clear what that lodging place actually was. It may have been a public campground in, in kind of the tradition that you might think of. Perhaps it was the place where caravans would stop as they, they might be traveling through Bethlehem. So you think of a caravan, don't, don't, don't think of the covered caravan that, you know, a lot of Kiwis go and have a holiday at the beach or something. Not that kind of a caravan. So think of traveling camels and donkeys and so forth. That sort of a caravan, all right? So it would be the place where these people are traveling through, bringing their animals, have a place for them to stop, have a feed, get a drink, and, and a place to sleep. All right, so this is probably the place that Jesus was born into. So the reason for that, by the way, Bethlehem's overcrowded. It's the time of the census. The Emperor Augustus has decreed that everybody should go back to their town of origin and register for this census. So they've obeyed. And as a result, Mary is forced to give birth where the traveler's animals were kept. She's laying Jesus... Baby Jesus in the feeding trough of animals. <laughs> you as a mother would probably be horrified, right? To think that, that, that your child is delivered in those kind of circumstances. I would imagine Mary would be feeling something similar to what your motherly in- instincts are telling you. Well, that's the setting of Jesus' birth. And then we move on to the to the next little paragraph in our Bibles here. We have an announcement made of Jesus' birth coming from these messengers that God has sent. Let's look at the announcement of Jesus' birth and this good news that came. We see in verses 8 through, through 10 here that the good news of the Savior's birth comes first to lowly shepherds. Because verse 8 says that it was in that same region where the shepherds they're out in that field keeping watch over their flock by night and then this angel of the lord appears to them the glory of the lord shone around them and they're filled with great fear and the angel said to them fear not for behold i bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people notice those words good news we th- hopefully you think of the word gospel when you hear the word good news So this good news is of a Savior's birth, and it's interesting, coming to shepherds. This is amazing, because shepherds were near the bottom of the social ladder at that time. They were the uneducated, the unskilled people. Uh, Sheep were required constant care, 24-7. And so because the sheep required this care seven days a week, all the days of the year, shepherds were unable to fully comply with all the Jewish regulations, particularly the man-made Sabbath regulation. And so as a result of that, they they were viewed, particularly by the religious leaders of Israel, as being unclean. And you say, why? Well, they were violating the Jewish man-made laws, their religious laws. Therefore, they were considered ceremonially unclean. They weren't welcome, particularly into Jerusalem, particularly into the temple. And so when God chose the shepherds 
to receive the announcement, it showed that the Messiah's ministry would be not to the self-sufficient, to the self-righteous, but no, the Messiah's ministry would go to the, to the uh, poor, to the lowly, to those who recognized that they were poor in spirit. The second, we see the good news is for all people groups. You might think of ethnicities here. Because the end of verse 10, it, it mentions that this great joy will be for all the people. All the people. Interestingly enough, there's a country named after this Greek word. All people. It's Laos. The Greek word Laos. So it's for, for all people groups. Not just for Hebrews, but it includes the Gentiles as well. Praise God for that. Because I'm a Gentile and so are you. That this good news, this gospel is for you and for all people groups. Number three, the good news is about a person. Specifically, it's about a Savior. If you look at verse 11, because the Bible says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. The angel did not give the child's earthly name at this point. But what he does mention is he mentions three titles for Jesus. The title Savior is a very appropriate one, uh, especially since the reason he was born, according to Matthew 1, 21, was to save his people from their sins. <clears throat> the word Christ is an exalted title for a baby under these circumstances, he, being born in very hum humble circumstances. To be called the Christ is incredible uh, because Christ is that same word you might find uh, something similar in the Old Testament for Messiah, Christ and Messiah. Uh, Messiah is kind of the Hebrew, or yeah, the Hebrew word. Christ being the Greek word, the same thing it means the same thing, referring to the same person. It means anointed one. It means one placed in a high office and worthy of exaltation and honor. Well, think about that. He's being placed in a manger <laughs> next to animals. Born in a poor family, but yet he's called the Christ, the Messiah. This highly esteemed, worthy one. That's interesting. And on top of that, notice the Scriptures call him Lord. Title Lord is a term of respect and esteem given to someone who is in a position of leadership and authority. Again, not the place you would typically find that kind of a person. You would expect that kind of person to be born in a palace, right? Nope, not the case with Jesus. So to call somebody Lord, by the way, is you're, you're actually acknowledging your submission to that person. And in this context, Lord is a divine title. So when, you, when, you, when you're saying this, you're saying that Jesus is God. He is God. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. And He is your Savior. He's all of those things combined into one person. So clearly the good news is about a Savior, about a person. Number four, the good news purpose. It has a purpose. And notice in your text, in verses 13 and 14, we see it is all about the glory of God. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Right As we just sang earlier, in the English it says, Glory to God in the highest, 
and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What are the angels doing here? They're doing what angels do. They're created by God, and they're worshiping God. They're doing what they constantly do, praising God. We have all heaven breaking loose with rejoicing here at the birth of Jesus Christ. And notice they're reflecting the supreme reason that God has created everything. The supreme reason for everything in God's creation is to bring Himself glory, to glorify God. The ultimate purpose of the good news of salvation is the same as everything else then, is to save sinners for this purpose that sinners can then glorify God. By the way, we often talk of peace at Christmas time. The peace of which the angels spoke about here is peace with God. It's not necessarily a an absence of war or famine or Ebola or whatever else you want to think about. That's not the primary peace that mankind needs. See, the Bible says when you're born, you're born into sin. You're born a sinner. And as a result, you're at enmity with God. You're His enemy. And you need reconciliation. You need a Savior. And that's what Jesus did when He came. That's why he is called the Prince of Peace. When the Prince of Peace came, he took sinners. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the Prince of Peace came and took these sinners and reconciled sinners to God the Father. So the good news purpose then is ultimately to glorify God. But we also see in the text that this good news has an effect on people. Good news has an effect on people. Let that register for a moment. Let that kind of sink in. Because we, it's interesting the response that we see with the shepherds. The shepherds' response is illustrating how all people need to respond to King Jesus. We see, number one, that they believed the good news. The angel came, verse 15, it says they Uh, Verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They believed the good news. And they responded. They came to Jesus. They acted on the truth that was given to them. My friend, this is incumbent upon every one of us including unbelievers, that they believe the good news of the Gospel. That they come to Jesus. It reminds me of Matthew 11 where Jesus gives that famous invitation where He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what the world wants, right? We often talk about that at Christmas time. That is what the world needs. Peace with God. But it's interesting what the shepherds also did is that they didn't keep this good news to themselves. They went and told others about Jesus. These shepherds went everywhere proclaiming the news of this Savior that they had heard and seen. And once they had heard, once they had believed, once they acted on that truth, the shepherds couldn't help but share that good news with other people. That's what we see them doing. Because in verse 16, it says they went with haste. 
And then they found Mary and Joseph. They also found baby Jesus in the manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So they're telling Joseph and Mary what the angels had, or the angel had told them. So they're sharing it with, with even Jesus' earthly mother and earthly father here. And, and notice, um, we, we see them in verse 20, the shepherds returned back to their fields after seeing baby Jesus. It says they're glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. That's amazing. So there's two interesting responses I just want to quickly highlight for you in the text. In verse 18, we see that some wondered. Some wondered at this good news of Jesus' birth. Uh, Verse 18 says, All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Wonder is an interesting word. So it's, the idea is they're, they're, they're marveling. They're amazed at this good news. Unfortunately, much of that amazement, though, didn't actually produce uh, salvation or commitment. Of course, much of that region never really understood who Jesus was and why He had come. They, they may have been curious, but it, it didn't actually lead to a saving faith. Sadly, most of them probably just went on their lives as if nothing had even happened. Their reaction, you could say, was shallow. It was superficial. Now, it's important that we don't respond that way. Very easy for us to respond to good news by just kind of going about our normal life and kind of forgetting what it's all about, not really understanding it. That is not the appropriate response to Jesus' birth. Or Christmas. The appropriate response would be more like what Mary does in verse 19. Notice what Mary does. Because the Bible says, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is the appropriate response of a true believer to Christmas. What is Mary doing here? She's thinking deeply on the significance of who this child is and why He has come. And you can tell that she truly embraced Christ because she's got this deep meditation on the Savior. She's not content with what she knew. She she knew some things probably the shepherds didn't. After all, she had an angel visit her too, right? But what is she doing? She's wanting to know more. She's not satisfied per se. She has this holy discontentment, if you will, with what she does know. She wants to understand more about the good news, about a Savior who was born in Bethlehem. My question for you is this. What is the appropriate response to Christmas? What is the appropriate response to Christmas? Well, may I suggest that we and you respond the same way the shepherds did. May I suggest the appropriate response to Christmas and to Jesus' birth is to do what the shepherds did in verse 20. Verse 20 Again, I'll remind you, it says that the shepherds returned, they returned back to their fields, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Just think about this, because these guys had an amazing experience that probably changed their life forever. It was one they possibly, no way they could have forgotten. Imagine yourself putting yourself in your sandals, 
having an angel come and talk to you and tell you this amazing news, and then all of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of angels lighting up this dark sky as around the fields, that would have been awesome. And then actually going and seeing baby Jesus, Joseph and Mary, being God, this God-man being born in such humble circumstances. It had to have changed their life forever, but life goes on. And eventually the shepherds went back to their fields, as it said. But notice what they're doing in verse 20. They are glorifying God and praising God. That is the appropriate response to the birth of Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is about, the birth of Jesus Christ. And may we remind ourselves that He was born to die. He came to save His people from their sins. The greatest problem that you and I have and this entire world has is peace with God. Not peace with each other, but peace with God. That is the appropriate response to give to Christmas and to Jesus. Let's glorify Him and praise Him forever.